downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast brought to you by the University of the West of England. For more information on the Bristol Lectures series including details on how you can attend visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow the hashtag Bristol Lectures. Well very good evening to you all thank you very much for coming uh, to University of West of England and to our Bristol Distinguished Address series the, f- the first in this uh, year's season. Uh, For those of you who have not met me, I'm Steve West, I'm the Vice-Chancellor of the University uh, and I'm delighted to welcome you. Um, It's great to see so many of you here. You've just given me a huge challenge, however, as I start to think about our 2030 strategy and in particular the master plan of our 2030 strategy, which uh, will see the university investing significant sums of money and clearly I'm going to need to build a bigger (laughs) venue for you. That's great. Um, A very warm welcome to uh, uh, colleagues who haven't been able to get into the lecture theatre but will be watching it being live streamed uh, in another lecture theatre just across um, the way there and um, we'll all be meeting up at the end hopefully for further discussions and some light refreshments. Um, The format of these events uh, some of you will be very familiar with I'm sure. Uh, They uh, allow us to hear from experts in their fields uh, and then hopefully towards the end have an opportunity to ask some questions and that will be the format for this evening but before we get into the main flow uh, a few housekeeping announcements first of all we're not expecting any fire alarms this evening Uh, if you do hear uh, the fire alarm there'll be an announcement uh, and the muster points or the exit points will be back into the car park you can see the green uh, Um, exit signs there we will make sure nobody is left in here I will be the last to leave uh, the building Um, and hopefully I'll get out okay so uh, but we'll make sure that you are all out don't worry about that if you have mobile phones can you put them on to silent but don't switch them off because what we would like you to do is to engage um, this this evening with uh, Twitter if you're into social media Um, Please use our hashtag, which is the um, hashtag that's in your programs. It's the um, hashtag Bristol Lectures. Um, We want you to engage with that. Please feel free to uh, do that this evening. And also, as we're going through, if you are storing up questions, um, please make sure that you're ready to spring into action uh, at the end and catch my attention Uh, If you can just make sure that you make it clear that you want to ask a question, I'll get around as many as I possibly can. uh, And um, Bevis has agreed to uh, answer them um, or deflect them. (laughs) Um, But we'll try and get through as many as we can. Um, So the first thing this evening is that we're going to hear um, from one of our graduates um, who graduated from um, the design Uh, with a design degree last year, 2019, uh, Kieran Devlin, uh, who has been working in Launch Space. And Launch Space is one of the early incubator uh, sites that we've got within the university where we try and encourage our students, our graduates, uh, who have great business ideas to go into that space and to be supported to develop their ideas, hopefully into a thriving, viable company. Um, So in a few moments, um, I'm going to invite Kieran to 
uh, say a little bit about what he's doing. And there are some clues down here, uh, which I'm sure he's going to talk about uh, in a few moments. And then following that, um, Jen Williams is going to introduce uh, Bevis Watts, uh, who is the Chief Executive Officer of uh, Triodos Bank. And, uh, and I'm sure he is going to, um, well, certainly challenge us. And I love the title of the lecture this evening. So bankers must become eco-warriors. And I'm fascinated to know what that means. Um, and then we'll get into some questions and then like refreshments at the end. So without further ado, um, can I uh, introduce to you uh, Kieran Devlin, who's going to just tell us a little bit about the work that he's been doing and his company. So Kieran. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I am Kieran Devlin, founding director of Revive Innovations. So, recycled mater materials and products often have common associations with being less beautiful and lower value. My company is aiming to change this perception and really higher the expectation of products which are recycled by inventing beautiful new materials and then applying them to products. So, as you said, um, I graduated from product design technology in July this year, and then since then I've been continuing to develop this business. This all started as my dissertation project on that in my final year, where I started analysing future wastes. Now, this is by this I mean the um, this is analysing the transitions in society and how this is constantly generating new waste streams. Now, this material here is made from 100% recycled CDs. There's no additives in it at all. CDs have transitioned by society from being the mainstay of portable media across the world straight down to pretty much a dust collector in most people's cupboards. There's been an 80% depletion in sales of CDs over the last decade. However, there are still 2 billion CDs being made uh, in the UK each year currently still. There is an, a process for recycling CDs. However, it involves a lot of chemical pollution and actually the infrastructure is completely inaccessible. I've used experimental design in the workshops at UWE uh, to develop a process which reconstitutes the original product adds nothing to it and, uh, and then develops this new composite which is a combination of all of the com materials which are actually already in this. Um, as you can see, I've made a record player and a stool. I've, other made, I've also made some other uh, smaller um, things such as earrings and knife handles and I'm looking to create a guitar, an electric guitar. One thing people have really sort of liked about the project is the ability to take the music product, the electronic music product, and really reconstitute it and create something which will be able to create more electronic music and the circularity within that. Um, I exhibited at a number of exhibitions over the last six months. Uh, one of these is a 100% design festival, which is part of L London Design Week. And at this, I've, all of these exhibitions, I've had really great feedback from a lot of people, um, which has inspired me to apply for launch space here back on campus, which is a startup incubation zone. Uh, from here, I've been able to start beginning to uh, develop my brand whilst also using the facilities here to move on with the products and to continue developing the material. Um, 
The next steps for me are to find somewhere to uh, a workspace for me to put equipment into and to begin to transition from experimentation into production. Um, by creating a valuable product from this waste stream, it allows me um, to um, eventually begin to build a more accessible recycling infrastructure in this waste stream. Um, like, as there's more value in the material from what I'm creating now than what they can originally create from the current processes that are available. This concept can also be applied to a wide array of different waste streams and um, this is something that I'm looking to sort of build into in the future. Thank you very much. As a math student, that sounded fascinating. Something that can take something that's not useful anymore to be really useful. So thank you. Good evening. My name is Jem Williams, and I'm president of the Institute of Chartered Accountants, the ICAW, in the west of England. We are proud to partner with UE on their Distinguished Address series, and it is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Ferris Watts. With 20 years of experience working in sustainability in the private, public and voluntary sectors, Bevis has an impressive history of working for only values-led organisations. Previously Chief Executive of Avon Wildlife Trust, Bevis was also Head of Business Support at the Waste and Resource Action Programme. Bevis had led Tridos Bank UK since April 2016 first as Managing Director of their UK branch, and now as CEO of Tridos Bank UK Limited. For 25 years in the UK, Tridos Bank has demonstrated a model of sustainable banking that uses the intermediary power of finance to benefit both people and the planet. They are also 100% transparent about who they lend to, focusing only on organisations that deliver positive environmental, social or cultural change. With the right values, banks can be a force for good and affect real, positive, systemic change in society. Ladies and gentlemen, Bevis Watts. There we are. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Microphone on. Good. Um, well, uh, it's a privilege to be part of the Distinguished Address series, and uh, I'm flattered that so many of you want to come and listen to me rant about banking this evening, so <laughs> thank you all for coming. And uh, it's particularly nice to give this lecture in what is the bank's 25th anniversary in the UK this year and our 40th anniversary uh, internationally. Um, so, um, to kick off, uh, this picture is um, uh, colleagues and myself as part of the climate strikes last autumn. Uh, and what a year 2019 was. It feels like we're finally waking up to the urgency uh, of the climate and other environmental emergencies um, that we face. Uh, and uh, in April last year, when Extinction Rebellion was getting criticised for the, the costs of this disruption to businesses in London, I was one of 20 business leaders that signed an open letter to the Times uh, saying that these pale into insignificance compared to the future costs businesses uh, will face uh, for continued inaction. And the central premise of what I want to talk to you about this evening is that banks uh, have to be absolutely key uh, to that action. They have to be driving it, and it's actually in their interest to do so. And not only that, but we've all got a role to play in bringing about um, that change. Um, but before I do that, um, two points of context. Um, the first is a little bit about me. This is me. 
I'm the smaller, less evolved fish uh, in this picture. Um, and uh, as Jen was saying, I, I've worked in sustainability um, uh, for nearly uh, 25 uh, years now. And um, uh, that makes me a little bit of an oddity uh, for somebody to run at the bank. And the press have uh, a little bit of fun with me from time to time. The latest one was the Independent, who called me an, an eco-warrior in a suit, uh, trying to change the way we bank. Um, and I think the fact it's such an oddity in itself tells you that we inherently think banking is not necessarily something that's good uh, for the natural environment. It seems such an oddity that you can have somebody uh, with the career I've had uh, involved in banking. Um, now, uh, um, I'll explain in a minute how I became interested in the issues of money. Um, I should also say as a point of context that um, uh, banking can be quite a dull topic. So uh, um, this evening there will be some of my very amateur wildlife pictures uh, used as metaphors for the points that I'm trying to make. So there may be moments that you think you're in the wrong lecture theatre, but just bear with me and it will make sense uh, at some point. Well, I hope it does. Um, uh, I started my career actually in a business school and the first 10 years of my career were actually in the waste recycling industry. So it's great to hear about Kieran's work. Uh, it gives me uh, nice flashbacks to those days. Um, and uh, I set up and created the financial mechanisms program for an organization called RAP, the Waste and Resources Action Program. So uh, my team and I were trying to leverage private sector investment into a very embryonic recycling industry in the early noughties. Uh, and we would work very closely with banks, introducing them to potential investment opportunities. We would often be providing government guarantees uh, to some of those transactions uh, and so on. And I suppose that's when I first encountered an industry that primarily looked at how it used money uh, in terms of minimising risk and maximising return. And, and it completely missed the third dimension, which is about impact. What role does that actually play in society? What are the consequences? What are my responsibilities um, for what that money uh, is doing? And I countered that. And I also encountered several vested interests. So in the words uh, of a banker that I met at that time, they were reluctant to really engage with us and look at um, serious investment in the recycling industry because they had a huge portfolio in the traditional waste management and disposal industry. And they were worried about what their clients was th would think. Because again, in, in their words, the return on investment on a landfill site is higher the quicker you fill it. And that was the sort of things that I was coming up against. So I was somebody trying to really affect change, work at a very grassroots level uh, in the environmental movement, uh, and I thought there's this bigger systemic issue uh, that we need to grapple with. And that's fascinated me uh, ever since, and it led me to first work for Triodos in 2008, uh, and then later, uh, after um, other things, come back to the bank uh, four years ago. Um, so that's a bit about me. Um, and then the other brief bit of context is just the bank that I run, uh, um, Triodos now uh, operates in six European countries. We have about 17 billion euros of assets under management and 700,000 customers across those um, six countries. That makes us um, a, a medium-sized bank, but at the smaller end uh, of medium-sized banking. And uh, the founders of the bank 40 years ago really set out to create a bank um, uh, not to become the biggest bank in the world and, uh, and so on. That's not going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, but to be a reference point, to try and prove that banking could be done in a different way, to try and prove that you can generate sustainable uh, financial returns for your uh, shareholders, that you can continue to grow uh, in a sustainable way, but operating differently. And the difference is, as Jen was saying, we only finance things that we think can demonstrate positive environmental, uh, social and cultural uh, impact. And if you're going to say that's what you do, then you have to be completely transparent. So we publish every loan and investment that we make. You can even get access to it on your mobile app if you have a current account with us to see what your money's doing. So we really put the, the opportunity to challenge us on whether we get that right um, with the customer. 
uh, and uh, that's absolutely key to what we do. Um, our banking model is also different. So to this day, Triodos is owned by a foundation in the Netherlands. You can buy shares in the bank, but those uh, shares are held in trust by a foundation and you elect a board to represent your interests. And that uh, foundation safeguards the sort of mission of the bank and that we are a mission-led, values-led organisation, uh, as well as uh, ensuring the financial stability uh, and robustness of the bank as well. Um, other differences are that we don't borrow from other banks uh, and that we uh, don't pay performance-related bonuses to incentivise the wrong uh, behaviours. So those are just examples of a very uh, different banking model. And then finally, in every sinew in, tri in how we run the business, we try to aspire to the highest environmental uh, and social standards. So our uh, UK head offices here in Bristol when they opened in 2012 had the highest environmental uh, ratings of any building in the country at the time and if there's any Guardian readers uh, amongst us you may have seen a couple of articles over the last two weeks that we've just opened a new headquarters for our Dutch business uh, and that building is thought to be the world's first circular building so it's completely designed to be deconstructed and recycled uh, at the end of its um, useful life and designed using natural materials or recycled materials wherever possible so that gives you a little bit of a sense um, about Triodos. Um, but we're not naive. Um, we, uh, we, we know that our role is to be that reference point. We're still a very small player uh, in an enormous um, global market. And so our um, challenge is, is to really try and change and influence thinking around banking, what its role is, how it could be run differently. Uh, so with that in mind, let's talk about banking. <laughs> Stay with me. <laughs> So this beautiful creature is a female elephant seal that I was lucky enough to meet um, a few years ago. Uh, elephant seals are um, amazing things because they've actually come back from near extinction. Uh, and it's particularly amazing that they've done that because they've got a very significant design fault. Uh, and the design fault is that almost as soon as they've given birth to their pups, they almost uh, immediately start mating again. And you might think, well, hang on, what's wrong with that? That sounds very efficient. Uh, but um, the design fault is that the males look like this. <laughs> they are four or five times the size of the uh, females. They fight viciously on the beaches for their territories to protect their harems uh, of females. Uh, and as a consequence, that can be quite a dangerous place um, for a newborn pup. So you might just be able to make out there to the side of the mother uh, is a very young pup. Uh, and the amorous bull is showing a lot of interest in mum. Um, so unfortunately what happens is you get an awful lot of the pups that are caught up in the fighting on very crowded beaches. In this case, don't worry, this one got away. This is a happy ending story, although mum unfortunately didn't manage to get away. Uh, but um, uh, this, uh, um, this madness I'm telling you is because um, the metaphor for how banking has behaved uh, for me in the, over the last 40 years since the deregulation and the consolidation that started in the late 1970s is it's behaved like the bull uh, elephant seal, um, with not sufficient regard for the wider society and community in which it's operating and thinking about the externalities and the impacts uh, of the businesses uh, that it's um, uh, investing in and lending in. Um, and I think we know that. Um, we've seen over the last decade an exposure of a huge range of uh, uh, scandals post the 2008 financial crisis that have come to light. I'm not going to labour on them. Uh, but I'm not putting this slide up to bank bash. Actually, that's pointless. It's become a sort of sport, and we need to raise the debate um, much higher than that. Um, bank bashing actually gets in the way of the debate we need to be having. It, it makes the consumer numb. Everybody thinks every bank's the same. There can't be any real choice or any difference. 
uh, to what they're doing. Um, and the debate we really need to be having um, is more about what the role of banks in society should be uh, and, uh, and, and uh, how they could be a force for good. Um, the days of banks being the sort of the goose that could lay the golden egg have gone because since these days we've seen a huge swathe of regulation over the last decade that's just now nearing completion. It will all be in place very soon, but that will prevent the previous excesses and the previous behaviours uh, that, that prompted many of these scandals. So, banking as a force for good. So, this is another friend of mine. Um, this is a seahorse, I'm sure you all know. And the seahorse is my metaphor for the complete role reversal I would like to see in terms of the role banks play in society because in the world of the seahorse, it's the male that gets pregnant. Uh, and uh, how they do that is another lecture. You can ask me about it afterwards. But um, uh, banks play an important role in our society. They're essential intermediaries. Um, you've seen the sort of uh, speculation that other things would replace banks over the years uh, with um, fintechs and the rise of alternatives. And actually what you've seen is all of those things have been sucked back into being banks, so they're properly regulated and robust. So we need well-regulated uh, tightly controlled uh, banks in our society. They play an essential role. Um, but in my view, that role is primarily to keep people's money safe. And secondly, it should be to use money in the long-term interests of the customers who place money um, with that bank. And it's that second point that I would really question. So I'm talking about something quite fundamental, a shift from an industry that has primarily been self-serving uh, and uh, thinking about um, value generation in a very internal way uh, to something that's more vocational and is thinking much more about what role it can play in change and what more role it can play in the future society uh, we're all going to live in. And just a little window in terms of how we think about um, our role as a bank. We see ourselves as a change agent. And like all banks, there's lots of levers and things we can do to influence uh, projects and businesses that we're uh, trying to support. Um, so firstly, we can vary interest rates. So we've worked um, for many years with the Soil Association, the Green Tourism Accreditation Schemes and others, whereby we will in, uh, lower the interest rate as businesses that we lend to increase their rating uh, in those different sustainability certification schemes. We don't do uh, personal mortgages in this country, but in the countries we do, we do the same with personal mortgages. So the higher your sustainability rating, if you improve that, then your interest rate um, reduces. So you can do things that start to uh, affect and think about um, behavioural change. Um, secondly, we can vary our risk appetite. So each year we have a sort of envelope that we set aside to try and do things that we wouldn't normally be able to do as a bank, that we think are particularly impactful, might prove a new concept, prove scalable, uh, replicable. So varying risk appetite is another way banks can play a practical role. And thirdly, banks are full of lots of very um, smart um, uh, people and have a lot of expertise to offer, and that can be deployed uh, in a constructive way. So I hope in the next month or so, um, you, those of you that follow Triodos might hear about us um, launching the UK's first natural capital investment projects, which is something we've spent two years uh, on a pro, no, pro bono basis investing our expertise uh, and thinking into. So that's just a little window on how we try to play a role. Um, it's much more than the transactional role that I experienced in the recycling industry and many of us will have experienced, which is just what is the ability to service the debt that I'm borrowing, what is the security that exists behind that. It's much more about what do we try to do together and how do we adapt our approach accordingly. So that sounds good, doesn't it? But isn't that all just fanciful environmentalism? Isn't that just a, a one-off? How on earth uh, can that be replicated? And why should banks be bothered? So why should banks care about what I've just been um, describing? 
Um, firstly, from a reputational point of view, the spotlight is really falling on the banking industry. This is an Extinction Rebellion campaign uh, last autumn, which was really calling on the banking industry to clean up its act and divest uh, in terms of uh, its interests in fossil fuels and its activities there. And it was particularly highlighting that because since the Paris Accord was signed in 2015, the global banking industry has continued to invest 1.6 trillion US dollars in the fossil fuel industry since the SDGs and the Paris uh, commitments were made. Um, and that's just one campaign. Um, we've also seen uh, Greenpeace successfully campaign against one of the UK's biggest banks to get it to stop financing deforestation in Indonesia for palm oil production. We've seen another major bank in the UK targeted uh, to try and get it to stop its um, uh, support for a, a fracking business, uh, looking to um, uh, explore sensitive areas of the UK. Uh, and we now even see Friends of the Earth and WWF globally making this priority. In fact, WWF have made changing finance one of their top three priorities globally. So they really see this as the systemic lever that can affect a lot of the environmental issues uh, that they are trying to um, uh, influence. Um, the theme tonight is really all of one about um, the environment given the climate emergency and, and the focus around that. But um, uh, the pressure is also going to build and banks are also going to be in the spotlight more and more on the social impacts of their behaviours and how they design products. And some of you may have seen uh, coverage in the last week or so around the high cost of credit, increasing overdrafts and, and so on. Uh, two weeks ago, there was also a ban announced on uh, um, credit card debt being used to uh, finance bets. How, how we ever ended up in a situation where you could borrow money to finance bets in the first place kind of tells you the sort of shake-up we need and the alternative DNA we need to exist within our banks. But, um, but sticking to the theme of this evening uh, and the environmental theme. Um, so why else should banks care? Well, this is um, uh, another campaign that happened a couple of years ago. Um, this was run by Christian Aid, uh, a campaign called The Big Shift. Um, this uh, in initially, um, uh, really, their, their impetus was around the sort of the moral arguments around developing countries um, being most impacted by the effects of climate change and extreme weather. But they were also highlighting uh, an issue called stranded assets. And the stranded assets issue has been known about some time. It's been around for a decade or more. And what this is, is if we um, listen to the scientists, then we have uh, um, five times the proven level of fossil fuel reserves than we could ever burn and keep climate change below 2 degrees C. And even if those scientists are wrong by a quantum of a third or 50%, the same is true. We, we have more proven fossil fuel reserves than we can burn and keep climate change in sustainable levels. That has huge consequences for banks that have invested in the businesses that have explored uh, and then invested in those fossil fuel assets. Uh, and that was the issue that they were trying to um, uh, highlight and many others have, that there is a systemic risk there of the exposure of our financial system um, to the fossil uh, fuel industry. And what this tells us is that banks are inherently connected to the natural environment and its limitations. And actually, we've known that in other ways as well. It, we're, we're also connected to what happens in the natural environment. A lot of people forget it, and it was not a sort of well-highlighted uh, fact at the time. But the actual, um, the first domino to fall in the financial crisis of 2007-8 was Hurricane Katrina happening in 2005. That was the major environmental event that exposed the subprime mortgage market by wiping out huge swathes of properties subject to subprime mortgages in the southern uh, states of the US. And the contagion um, started from there. So banks are fundamentally connected to the natural uh, environment. 
environment. We're seeing further examples of this. On the left here, um, the largest energy uh, um, business in California actually filed for bankruptcy because it couldn't meet the liabilities uh, that it had following the Californian um, wildfires. It is a 25, was a $25 billion US company. Imagine the implications for the banks involved with that business and the others. So, um, so this is why there is a fundamental business case that banks should care. And I could make the same business case, not just for climate change and climate-related risks. I could make the same business cases for air pollution, biodiversity loss, uh, ocean pollution, soil degradation. All of those issues uh, will create systemic risks that will come back to affect banks uh, and their loan portfolios. Uh, and on the right there, um, one of many articles speculating that uh, a, a ban on um, petrol and diesel, uh, diesel cars in city areas and so on will be accelerated all these things, again, have fundamental risks for the businesses that banks are lending to who will have to um, change their uh, assets and technologies accordingly. Um, again, maybe you're not convinced. Maybe this is fanciful environmentalism, making a business case uh, as to why banks should care um, about the natural environment. Well, uh, if you're still not uh, convinced, um, this is uh, an extract from a report that I can't do justice to tonight. Um, but this came out uh, just before Christmas. Uh, it's a report published by the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. Um, this is a movement that Triodos founded uh, in 2009. It's over 50 like-minded banks worldwide that are trying to make the case uh, for change in the industry. And it's uh, produced in conjunction with Deloitte and the European Investment Bank. They took the world's top 100 systemic banks and they compared their financial performance with their environmental social governance uh, performance. And guess what? They found that the banks with the, the best environmental social governance outperformed commercially the other banks. So uh, it's becoming beyond doubt now that, uh, um, that uh, environmental and social responsibility actually leads to a better performance of banks. And banking regulators, central banks, are starting to um, think in this way. And... Um, the Bank of England, uh, after, it has to be said, many years of lobbying and pressure to do so, have actually now started to regulate banks for climate-related risks. So they became the first central bank to require banks to do stress tests, to actually uh, uh, demonstrate uh, and look at what risks they're exposed to as a result of uh, climate change. And the sort of risks they're looking back, uh, to banks to evaluate are firstly physical risks, so if you have a large, uh, for example, agricultural portfolio or a large housing portfolio where they may be exposed to extreme weather events, flooding, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, or um, they're also asking banks to evaluate transition risks. So where will businesses have to change their technology or their business models significantly to react to uh, environmental regulation as governments inevitably have to speed up? Uh, the level of regulation that, um, that sits around um, trying to get to net zero uh, by 2050. Um, so central banks are focused on this and are getting this, um, this business case that I've described. And um, our governor, Mark Carney, has been a real leader. And I think he's gone way beyond what you might normally expect a governor of the Bank of England to say uh, on this issue. Uh, and he's also been instrumental in the creation of the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which is a global movement of central banks trying to do um, the same thing. And importantly, the uh, Bank of England have also put the onus on banks having to appoint a senior person with uh, a dedicated senior management function status who is responsible for ensuring the robustness of this risk assessment uh, and, uh, and, and its execution. And this is all terrific. Um, 
but where uh, we are being led to um, by our governor, who is about to become the UN, UN envoy for finance and climate, which is good news. But um, he and others have led us to the foothills. It's fantastic that we are now recognising and we are regulating banks uh, uh, to, to recognise that they have that inherent connection to the natural environment and they are exposed to those systemic risks. The summit that we need to get to is to recognise that they actually have a role in creating those risks in the first place. And we actually have to regulate them for the level of societal uh, risk they are creating um, through their activities. Um, so how do we go about changing banking? Um, <clears throat> I like to think the one on the right is saying, have you heard the one about the ethical banker? <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've ever seen an elephant push over a tree, but um, they don't charge at it uh, and attack it. They don't pull at it with force. Um, they put the base of their uh, trunk up against the tree trunk and they ripple it up the tree trunk and eventually their front legs come off the ground and then all of the weight of the elephant goes through the back legs and through the trunk of the tree and it starts to bow. And they don't necessarily flatten it and destroy it. They often just leave it at a different angle so they can get the fruit and the vegetation that they want. And that leaves something still living and a new ecosystem emerges from the roots uh, and a different kind of tree is, uh, is left in its place. And so that's my metaphor, the elephant pushing over a tree, for how we need to change banking. We need elephant-like firm pressure um, for this to happen and for it to happen in the speed at which it now needs to happen. But um, I'm not an advocate of complete anarchy and disruption. As I say, banks are an essential part, uh, an essential part of our economy, essential intermediaries. But we must reshape them and create a different ecosystem uh, in banking. And there's good progress in this respect. So um, colleagues of mine internationally uh, were co-authors of something called the UN Principles for Responsible Banking. Uh, which were formally adopted by the UN as part of uh, Climate Week last September. Uh, and um, I can't um, cover everything, but they will start to require banks to be transparent, publish details of how they're using money, create feedback loops with their customers to ensure their customers understand and are happy with how that money is being used. Uh, and so this starts to change the game, and this is a voluntary uh, agreement at the moment. Um, 130 banks in 49 countries have so far signed up uh, to the UN principles, um, which is a great start. Uh, there's a lot more to go. Um, the other thing that launched as part of um, UN Climate Week is something called the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials. Now, this is again something Triodos has been involved in developing, uh, and last May we became the first bank in the world to publish the carbon footprint of our loan book. And what this is, is uh, this is a first attempt at finding a common methodology that all financial institutions could use to understand the carbon footprint of their loan books. So we're all working from the same assessment, uh, the same baseline. Uh, and so far, 50 global finance institutions have signed up uh, to adopt PCAF. Uh, but that um, doesn't sound a huge number, but they represent 2.8 trillion US dollars of assets under management. So there are huge fund managers and other people signed up to use this methodology. Uh, beyond that, we've seen in the Netherlands and Spain, Banks, uh, um, uh, the banking sectors collectively sign up to climate agreements, to sign up to what it is they're collectively going to try and do. Uh, and so it's not a competitive thing, it's not somebody trying to be more green than the other, it's a collective commitment to try and reduce uh, their carbon footprint over time. Uh, and so we're actively trying to influence thinking and work with a cross-party group of MPs uh, to see if we can't get further adoption of the UN principles in the UK, but perhaps also see if we can't have some form of climate agreement uh, at COP26 uh, in Glasgow later this year. 
Um, and good things are happening. We should recognise that. The European Investment Bank has said it's going to move away from financing fossil fuels only last week. Lloyd's made a very bold uh, commitment uh, to uh, uh, reduce its carbon emissions. So this is all good news. Um, the issue is we must make sure that everybody is uh, clear on uh, they are doing uh, the same thing. And there was a report last year from the World Resources Institute that showed that 50% of banks that had made such commitments to reduce its carbon uh, didn't publish the methodology by which they were making their calculations uh, and 30% of them did not actually intend to publish the results of their progress against those commitments. So, um, so we really have to hold people to account on this and that's why a methodology like PCAF uh, is very important. Um, I also want to give you a sense of the scale of the challenge, uh, the scale of the change we need uh, in mainstream banks. So this is something called the Global Clean Energy Pipeline, they're league tables of uh, uh, renewable energy finance. And banks are not the only source of finance for renewable energy, it can come from uh, various places, but these are league tables of just what banks are doing. And you'll see there's a small, medium-sized bank called Triodos at the top of this league table, which is the number of transactions financed uh, in any one year. We've topped that league table uh, over the last four years, uh, and there, there we are um, with 78 transactions worldwide. Now, you can dismiss that and say, well, it's not really about the number of transactions. Triodos does a lot of small stuff. We finance a lot of community-owned uh, renewable energy projects. Uh, it's actually really more important is the actual amount of money uh, put out uh, into the market because that has a you know, direct correlation with the amount of megawatts that's being uh, installed uh, and so on, the amount of megawatt generation that's being installed. True. Uh, that is absolutely true, that challenge. Only if you look at the other league table, which is a, a league table of how much money is actually put into the market, this small, medium-sized bank still features at number 19. A 17 billion euro bank still features at number 19 in the world in terms of the amount of money being put into renewable energy. And there is only one British bank in that league table at number 18, NatWest, part of the RBS NatWest group, and it's just above us with only uh, a 20 odd million uh, US dollars more put into renewable energy. The RBS NatWest group is a 775 billion sterling uh, group. Just to give you a sense, of, of the kind of change we need, uh, and obviously that has to be supported by a policy environment uh, and, and so on that brings on deals that banks can be financing, but that gives you a scale of the, the challenge and also where we rate as a country in terms of uh, what our banks uh, are using money for. Right, so really stay with me now. <coughs> this is an arrow crab. Less of a friend, more of an acquaintance, to be honest. He's got some anger man management issues. Um, <coughs> Uh, this uh, arrow crab is um, devouring a fireworm. That's what he's clutching in his claw and he's chewing in his mouth. Um, and if you or I were to touch a fireworm, we would have a rash for a couple of days. And so my metaphor for how regulators need to change is that they're going to have to digest some very difficult things that the banking sector is not going to like. Um, and... Um, by that, I am saying we need to regulate banks to have this responsible role for how money is used in our society. And I can't go into all of the ways that could be done, and I'll use just one example. But existing banking regulation is sufficient. It can just be adapted for the same purpose. Now, what drives profitability in banks is the amount of capital that they have to hold. 
Uh, and that is um, uh, worked out in partnership with regulators through very complex calculations. Uh, it will depend on whether you have large concentrations in a particular industry. Uh, it will depend on uh, how much uh, you might have concentrated on a particularly small group of large uh, borrowers. Uh, uh, it might also depend on what sectors you're lending to. So we are a, a large lender to the social housing sector in the UK and social housing is seen as a very um, safe sector. It's always going to be a need we have as a society. If a social housing association was to fail, then you can make application to sell those properties on the open market as part of your security. So it's seen as relatively low risk. So banks are allowed to hold 35% of the capital against those loans uh, compared to the amount of money they would have to hold against a normal business loan. So what that does is it makes it more profitable uh, for the bank and therefore a very competitive market and it drives down the interest rates. So the cost of borrowing for social housing associations is much less than the conventional uh, interest rates that might be offered to uh, businesses and other organisations. So if you, if you think about that for a moment and think, okay, wow, that, that, that shifts the economics of a sector quite significantly. So if you were to apply that to renewable energy and say, hmm, okay, we're going to need a lot more of this, uh, I don't think we're going to be in short uh, demand for renewable energy. Maybe we apply a discount uh, to incentivise uh, that. Or alternatively, if you thought, actually, we need a lot less in fossil fuels and we should recognise that there is a um, global systemic risk being created through that, maybe we should put a premium and require 120, maybe 130% capital weighting on loans to that industry. You would quickly start to shift the economics uh, of, of the cost of capital uh, to those industries. Well, again, this is Bevis. He's fanciful environmentalist, ranting on about things. Well, I can tell you that the EU has already taken a decision that in 2021 they will apply 75% capital weighting to renewable energy for exactly the reasons I've just discussed. We as a bank um, would say, actually, um, that's great, but the more important thing is we start to focus on the premiums because that will really drive change in banking and really drive them away from the uh, more harmful uh, industries that we don't want to be supporting. And it will shift the economics away from fossil fuels. Now, for that to happen, we all have to be talking about the same thing. We all have to understand what is green, what is bad. Uh, and so the EU, in parallel to this, have been working on uh, what's called a taxonomy, uh, and they have looked at seven broad industrial uh, sectors and 67 different types of business activity to define whether uh, those activities are sustainable, whether they are perhaps enabling sustainable, uh, or whether they're transitional. So some fossil fuel, the lowest emitting fossil fuel industries, will be an essential part of our energy mix for some time to come, and they should be seen as transitional and perhaps not penalised. Uh, but there, then there's other and the stuff that we really need to move away from. And what the EU plan to do is allow firms to apply to use an eco-label on their products, funds, or even at a firm level uh, to justify um, the uh, sustainability. So this is important so we don't just get greenwash, that we get a really robust assessment of uh, uh, how different activities are categorised and then how banks negotiate with regulators the amount of capital that they might have to hold uh, against um, different uh, industries uh, depending on the perceived risks um, within them. Of course, you might have heard me mention the EU. So, obviously, we're not going to be in the EU and we were one of only two member states to vote against the adoption of this taxonomy. 
So one of the things that we need to keep uh, an eye out on is what taxonomy the Bank of England will adopt. Will they directly mirror this? Uh, will they directly mirror the lower capital weighting that's going to be applied to renewable energy? Uh, or will they soften it in order to protect the UK banking industry uh, and its global prospects? That's something we've really got to watch um, very carefully. So other elephant pressures and what we need to do to change banking. Um, Many of you won't know, but the UK banking market is primarily dominated by four very large banking groups uh, uh, up on the screen there. In fact, 75% of all of the current accounts in the UK are with those four banks. If you add in Santander as the fifth biggest, it's 80%. Well, there are nearly 600 banks licensed to operate in the UK, and over 140 of those are retail banks, so direct competitors of these organisations. So that tells you there's, there's a great big long tail of lots of banks fighting for 20% uh, um, of the market. And I don't personally believe that you can ever have banks truly connected to the environmental uh, and social um, risks that they're creating unless they can feel the consequences. And we still have this dynamic of banks being too big to fail. We will always have to have systemic banks uh, that are integral and, and that have a slightly higher uh, uh, focus um, from a regulatory and government point of view. Um, but this dynamic has to change. And to be fair to the Bank of England, they've tried to um, make, uh, uh, take several measures to increase competition. Um, they've uh, licensed something like 19 new banks over the last decade, uh, and that's all very well. And there's, there's a term you may be familiar with, challenger banks, which is a term given to these new breed of banks. We're often called a, a challenger bank, even though we've been around for 25 years, which can be a bit odd. But, uh, but um, that term uh, really is um, something we need to explore a bit, because in reality, what we're getting is more competition around rates and customer journey and service offering. Are we really getting anything different? in terms of what new banks are bringing to the market. And that's what we have to be focused on. We need banks that are going to challenge the way banking is done, not just provide competition uh, for competition's sake. Um, reasons to be optimistic, though. Every year, we fund independent consumer research as part of Good Money Week. Uh, and year after year, it comes back with a very strong message that the vast majority of people would like to know what their money is doing. Uh, an even larger um, uh, majority of people don't feel they really have any clue or any transparency as to what their money is used for. Uh, and over 50% of people um, say they would uh, uh, switch their banking services if they uh, did understand that their banking was negatively affecting uh, people or the planet. So there's re reasons to be optimistic in terms of what we see in consumer research and attitudes changing. But, another one of my friends, this is the typical view you will get of an octopus. Uh, they're often in the day, tucked up, hidden under a rock. You're lucky if you see half a tentacle or an eye poking out at you. Uh, very hard to find. They're kind of tucked up going, I'm all right, Jack. I'm perfectly safe. The world out there can carry on. So this is my metaphor for how we behave as banking consumers. Um, we tend to be tucked up, all right, Jack, happy with our arrangements. Not really, it's a big deal, isn't it? I've got to change bank. Um, only 900,000 of us pretty much every year consistently for the last few years have used the current account switching service to change bank. And the vast majority of people doing that uh, do so for financial incentives, for £150 there, £200 there uh, to switch accounts. So um, we as consumers need to change as well. 
And um, the octopus at night is a very different creature. The octopus at night is out hunting. It's shoving its tentacle into every nook and cranny it can find uh, looking for food. So this is what the UK banking consumer needs to become. It needs to become the octopus shoving its tentacle into every aspect of its bank and its bank manager that can find uh, to find out what it's doing uh, with its money. Um, and it's not just individuals um, that need to have that approach. It's organisations as, as well. I'm here at a university this evening, so I thought I'd pick the university sector. Uh, it's a sector that's um, seen a number of universities lobbied by student bodies to divest from fossil fuels and to think about where its reserves uh, are being invested and so on. Uh, this is, um, I know there's been a, a group of students here um, engaged with the issue, so there's a campaign uh, there at the University of Manchester. Uh, and on the right here is an article um, that was published just a couple of weeks ago um, by Joy Carter, who is uh, the Vice-Chancellor of Winchester University, uh, which is a university we're supporting in financing what will be the greenest campus development uh, in the UK when it opens um, later this year. But Joy is a real thought leader on sustainability and, uh, uh, and she makes the case here that it's not just thinking about your reserves, but it's also thinking about where you borrow money from. Who do you choose to give your interest to? Who do you choose to share the profitability of your uh, developments and projects um, with? So uh, I think it was published in um, Times Higher Education for those of you interested uh, uh, from the university here. Um, <coughs> and um, this directly isn't related to banking. Some of you will remember a couple of years ago the Paradise Papers. <coughs> This uh, was about offshore um, uh, banking and tax avoidance and everything else. Um, and the point I want to make here, though, is that the common excuse used, no matter who it was, members of the royal household, famous celebrities, etc., uh, etc., et is they all said, oh, we didn't know. We didn't know what uh, our sort of representatives were doing. We didn't know what those arrangements were. So the thing we have to do is to try and make it as socially unacceptable to not know what your money doing is, is doing, as it was socially acceptable at the beginning of my lifetime to drink, drive and smoke around small children. That's the kind of journey we need to go on, to take responsibility for our money and really understand and know what it's doing, both at an individual and at an organisational level. And then to finish, um, the last of my friends you'll meet. I won't name them all individually. It might take us some time. Uh, this is Shapwick Heath on the Somerset Levels a couple of weeks ago. Uh, starling populations are, um, uh, are challenged nationally, but Shapwick Heath is a great story of nature's recovery. And banking can recover. Banking can be a very different sector. There are a lot of good people uh, who work in banking who are trying to be the change agents within their institutions, and we need to support them, we need to find those advocates, uh, and we need to help them uh, in their work, because we're really only going to get change if we change uh, uh, mainstream banks and the larger banks particularly. That has to happen given the uh, rate of change we have to see to address the climate emergency and other environmental emergencies uh, in particular. Um, and uh, the last thing I'll do is actually bring out a prop. So um, a while ago, I was cleaning out the um, effects of a late aunt, and I discovered this, which is a little um, commemorative pack of the UK's first decimal coins, um, published in 1977, or print or minted in 1977, I should say. And the face value of those coins is 18 and a half pence. Uh, now, if you were to go on uh, eBay, you'd find these selling for around 25 quid. 
uh, nowadays. So that's what banks have traditionally been good at, turning 18 and a half pence into 25 quid as quickly as possible uh, and distributing that to its um, shareholders and to senior staff uh, incentivized to serve uh, the, the interests of those um, shareholders. But think about that. We've only had decimal coins since 1977. We created a half-pence piece, then we did away with a half-pence piece. Um, money and our banking system is not something of nature. It is not a given. It is something created by us. It's something we can change. It's something we can evolve to serve uh, a more fair and sustainable society that I think we all deserve. Thank you for listening. Of them here. I'm hoping that I won't need to use them. Um, so, hands up if you can say who you are. Oh, well, wow. uh, who you are, and then your question. Keep your question brief and tight. I don't need a half-hour documentary uh, so that Bevis can then respond to them. Uh, and if you can wait for the microphone, that would help us as well, uh, just to make sure we hear the questions. So, I'm going to go right at the back, and then I'm going to come back down to the front. So, right at the back, uh, there's a guy with a Polo neck blue thing with his arm up. There we go, just there. That's it. <coughs> now I'm going yellow. It's a question for my banker. Question for my banker. My name's Dominic Hogg. I work for an environmental consultancy in Bristol called Unomia. And uh, Bevis, you talked about the lack of. Uh, Acknowledgement of the, ex the 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 damages caused by uh, the environmental damages caused by lending in many cases, and you talked about one mechanism, which was about discounts and premia for um, on on the capital requirements for lending. I wondered though whether you could talk a little bit about how um, what what role there might be for changing fiscal policy to internalise costs of air, air pollution, carbon damages, carbon-related damages, uh, and so forth in the, in the current banking system. Because in the absence of banks really putting their, the focus of their due diligence equally on the environmental side, or at least giving parity to that relative to what's going on on the financial side, yeah. then surely that's got to be a key way of making sure that those uh, that their decisions internalize those um, those damages yeah i um shall i answer Steve? is that all right the... yeah yeah no, sorry i didn't know where to dive in but uh, yeah i mean um I, I firstly i hope we will get somewhere because at an eu le level progress is really being made and, and the best thing is to not adjust the sort of uh, the, the banking model too much and to use existing mechanisms, in my view, to avoid, you know, total disruption and to do things we're familiar with. Um, but in other countries, you have seen fiscal instruments used to incentivise people to save into certain products that have to be used for a certain purpose. So in the Netherlands, you've had things called the green funds, where people uh, saving into those products um, get a sort of fiscal uplift and tax relief uh, and therefore an inflated return, which... which 
you know, creates an incentive for banks to then use and deploy those monies uh, uh, into certain sectors. So that's one option. And the other thing, which is maybe what you're digging at, which is if we have labelling schemes uh, and we have uh, a clear taxonomy and we have ratings of banks, then maybe we apply a different rate of taxation to those at an entity level, uh, depending on their performance. So there are definitely mechanisms that can be pulled there, I agree, or explored. Hi, yep, let me, Mark Everard, Hi, Mark. Uh, um I'm interested in your take on natural capital. I was at the launch of the uh, natural capital accounts at the ONS and heard a presentation from the Dutch one pre-launch and was profoundly disappointed because it was all based on exchange value. In other words, how does nature fit within our economy rather than just how our economy expand to embrace uh, natural value? And that's before we get into stocks versus flows, what nature does versus what we can trade. So your take, I'm fascinated. Uh, well, I, I mean, my take personally, as somebody who spent an awful long time working in sustainability, cares passionately about nature, is I mean, we shouldn't lose uh, sight of the inherent value of nature. I, I think it's, it, it really is a crazed society that doesn't appreciate its fundamental importance to our own well-being and our own uh, mental health, et cetera, et cetera. But that said, I think the only way we're going to kind of win the argument and really get the scale of investment in the restoration of the natural environment that we need is to make this economic connection and actually um, uh, put, be able to put a value on the social and economic um, benefits that we derive from nature. So that's what we've spent the last couple of years working on and uh, we hope to launch uh, projects uh, in the near future with seed funding in partnership with DEFRA, uh, Esme Fairburn and the Environment Agency that, um, uh, that, that, are, that are projects that have multiple sort of benefits, ecosystem service benefits, uh, multiple beneficiaries that are prepared to put money into that and therefore there is a bankable case as to why you would then uh, invest in those projects. Uh, in the longer term. But um, you kind of have to play the pitch that's in front of you and the sort of political economic construct we work in means we're going to have to uh, deliver those things. But the natural capital space, it, it can become all about accounting and we can become obsessed with trying to quantify that value. And I think we're really, I, I, I see it exactly as it was in the recycling sector was in the sort of uh, late 90s when I was engaged with that. It's at a very, very early stage and we need to find some uh, early pilots and get some projects away, learn from those. Uh, because it's not always going to be replicable. You're dealing with completely different landscape issues, completely different uh, uh, natural environment benefits. So, uh, yeah. Okay, I've got, um, I mean, top, yeah, it's two, two on that question, so just pass it down when you finish. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm Kleiner from Make Votes Matter, and first of all, thank you very much for a really fascinating talk and brilliant vi visual metaphors. <laughs> I think we all need to up, up our visual metaphor game. Um, and so I've got a bit of a curveball. I was really delighted to hear you talking about uh, kind of your background in sustainability and then realising that we need to think in a bigger systemic way. And so that is exactly kind of how my life has been from an environmental activist to working in sustainable enterprise to finally realising that we have to deal with the fact that we don't have democracy in this country and um, this is causing a lot of problems. And so my question, um, which I actually submitted, so I'm going to read it out, uh, is countries with proportional representation slow carbon emissions faster, have better environmental laws and use more renewable energy. Would you recommend that eco-warrior bankers look into making votes matter so that we can finally address the climate and ecological crises with the urgency needed? 
I said to Steve earlier that I went to a briefing with, um, that, that Mark Carney gave to the media a while ago and, uh, uh, and I think he said to the journalist, um, I think how this works is you get to answer the questions, I get to choose the answers. And uh, I, uh, that's always stuck with me because um, I work very hard not to politicise um, the bank on myself and stick to objective debate. But I, I would certainly agree with you that I think the system we're operating in needs revision. Uh, and uh, it's interesting working um, for a bank that was founded in the Netherlands where they have a very different system in many ways. So politicians can only serve a maximum of eight years in their parliament. Their upper house is elected. Uh, and so, you know, uh, uh, there's lots of things um, beyond the things you mentioned, I think, that, that would benefit the sort of kind of level of debate we need to have. Hi, I'm Nina. I'm from Business West. It was really interesting to hear you say about uh, 2019 being the year that climate change has really sort of been brought to the forefront. Um, and having worked in, in the environmental sector for 10 years, it was something that we were gently trying to nudge companies. And now every meeting I go to with businesses, climate is, is talked about. So um, what we're really interested to hear from you is what first steps do you think businesses, now that we've got this sort of energy behind it, what should businesses be doing as, as their first step? Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, crikey. I mean, the, 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 the one thing is, is at any institutional level, I, th I think we've got to understand what it is we're really talking about. You know, what, what's great over the last year is we're now taking it much more seriously. You know, we've had government commit to net zero by 2050. So if that's what we're trying to do on a business level, the first thing is to fundamentally understand what the baseline is. Uh, and to ensure there's robust methodologies that we're comparing like with like. That was the point I was making around banks, that if banks aren't following PCAF, or if PCAF isn't the, 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 the methodology that sort of surfaces to the top, that everybody starts to accept as the, the norm, then what is the underlying methodology to make sure we're comparing apples with apples? Um, and so I think any business starting uh, really on this journey, because there's lots of you know, ordinary businesses who are now really engaged with this, but, but it's just a benchmark. Uh, and, and it, it, you know, their carbon footprint, but, you know, if, if they haven't done it before, you know, whether that's waste audits or whatever. So, uh, yeah. Great, thank you. I've got a gentleman with uh, blue young lanyard on his, that's it. Hello, um, my name is Ahmed and I'm the president of the Venture Society. We're the Entrepreneurship Society here at UWE. Um, my question as an engineer is, how do you envision technology will help your mission in achieving that goals that you've got for it? That's it. Um, I, I'm not sure whether you mean specifically us as a bank or, or, or more broadly. So, I mean, I'm, I'm Okay, so how does top technology enable us ourselves? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's an interesting time um, to be in banking because we've had something called the um, Payment Services Directive uh, at an EU level that requires banks to, to share data. And so you can see what um, uh, people have within different institutions. And the idea of that is that you're, it's going to shake up banking a bit because the relationship with the consumer could sit with somebody that isn't a bank but isn't approved to have access to that data and allow you to manage your funds through perhaps one dedicated app, etc., uh, etc. Et um, I, I think that will be a much slower burn um, to have impact in the sector. Um, and what I'm most interested in is how does it give connection to money? I mean, we're the only bank that does what we do in terms of publishing the loans, allowing you to interact with it. Uh, and that quite excites me, what we can do to actually bring that visceral connection with what your money does through technology 
uh, is a particular interest. Um, we're also uh, in the early stages of discussing partnerships uh, with uh, several lifestyle apps that are under development, so apps that enable you to measure your own carbon footprint uh, or perhaps be rewarded for ethical consumer choices. So obviously that's quite exciting that you could link that with the banking app. So, um, so I think there's a world of emergent stuff, but I'm not sure that's all going to hit uh, in, in the near future. Thank you, Bevis. Uh, my name's Chris Farnsworth, uh, Raising the Bar, Team Building with Sheep, as yep. uh, you might remember. Uh, I've um, been team building with your sheep once upon a time. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Bevis, I'm really interested because there's lots of information out there about the environment, and we hear it all the time. You have uh, um, scientists arguing against each other. What's, how do we know we're going down the right course? And is carbon catcher, capture the only real measure? How do we get carbon back into the soil? Is that, is that the nuts and bolts of it? Or should we just be going back to nature because Mother Nature will come back and bite us hard? Uh, well, in my view, um, certainly the latter is true. Uh, and I, I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing Mother Nature start to react. Um, yeah, in, in terms of how we solve the problem, I mean, so two thoughts that crop up as, as you were speaking, really. I think we mustn't just measure success and progress alone purely in carbon reduction or sequestration. The environmental crises we face are much broader. Actually, ocean pollution uh, in, in itself and the, the breakdown of that ecosystem could get us uh, before um, climate change does. And equally, biodiversity loss. Scientists say we maybe are not too far away from losing something uh, in the sort of food change things that are actually quite critical. Um, so it mustn't only be measured in that way. In terms of the big challenge of carbon uh, and climate, um, there, there are multiple solutions. What frustrates me at the minute is the focus on tree planting because actually upland peatland restoration um, could have much bigger impact uh, than just simply tree planting. Uh, equally, better care for um, um, uh, ocean beds, uh, seagrasses and various things have huge carbon um, storage opportunities. So I, I think that the answer to your question is that the debate's got to be quite broad and, uh, and it can become very narrowed around a particular political sort of soundbite of tree planting or, or whatever. So um, I hope that gives you some useful insight to yeah, thank my you. thinking. So. Okay, I've done, done this side. I'll come back if there's time. Don't worry. I'm going to go this side, otherwise this side will start shouting at me. So I've got, I think I've got a gentleman in the second row. Is that there you go? No, I've got this side. Uh, I'm Barry Cash. I'm <clears throat> a member of a group called Grandparents for a Safe Earth. We're a group of elders that take non-violent direct action uh, to try and combat climate change. Um, that's we go and demonstrate outside banks or sit in their branches until they call the police and get them to chuck us out. Can, can you suggest some more effective actions we could take to... to more effective actions to persuade the big banks to give up their addiction to fossil fuels, please? Wow. Uh, I think you've got 350 people signed up to join you wherever you're going next, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> I love the fact your name's Cash as well. That's, uh, um, uh, crikey. I, I think, you know, my, my only answer to that is we all play an important role in an ecosystem trying to influence change. 
And people who do what you do are actually a very important part of that because it does aggravate and it does uh, get notice. And what Extinction Rebellion and Christian Aid and others have done is an important part. We're part of that ecosystem trying to sort of positively influence uh, and debate with regulators. But um, I think, as I was trying to say on the reputation angle, you're going to see more and more focus from global NGOs uh, I know there's a film and a campaign coming out in April that's focusing on pension funds. You're going to see more and more of this stuff. So my answer would be to you and to everybody here is to really leverage that stuff and get behind it fully and share it as widely as you can. Okay, anyone on this side? Uh, maybe one, two, three, right on. Hi, uh, my name's Marion. I'm not as cool as this man. Here. <laughs> uh, sorry. Neither am I. <laughs> um, so... Um, you talked a lot about policies and the influence you're trying to push on policy making. Uh, if there was one bit of policy you would like to undo that has been recently done or maybe uh, more historically, what would that be? Uh, well, not necessarily undo it. I, I, I'll, I think I meant the, the thing I'm most excited about is this, this, this taxonomy of what's sustainable, what's not and then how that could be used to drive the capital weightings and, uh, and, and, uh, and the profitability of banks. The issue at the minute is that taxonomy at an EU level has just been developed around green, around green technologies. And I think what we should be doing is developing that taxonomy for the sustainable development goals much more holistically uh, around social and cultural measures as well. So that would be the one thing that this is all great progress, but that would be the switch I'd like to flick. Okay, we've got three of you there. Three hands went, oh, I've got those three. Then we'll see. We might do quick-fire questions, so be quick-fire in a second. Yeah. Oh, hi. Uh, my name's Simon Bruce. Uh, I'm an accountant, so I'm uh, uh, quite used to dealing with lots of numbers and stuff. And um, in the competitive capitalist world that we live in, um, and there are big four big banks that basically look after uh, the bulk of our uh, financial and um, banking needs in this country. How happy are they to change their game? Because they've uh, done pretty well over the last uh, 60, 80, 100 years um, in the way that they've carried on. I, I can't answer that for them. And there's, there's representatives of uh, some, some of the, the big four brands in this room who can perhaps answer it better. Um, I, I think it, it, it's clearly not an, an easy sell to move away from a model that is there to profit maximise to serve shareholders and senior staff incentivised to serve those shareholders. Uh, that, that's not an easy thing. Um, I'm quite encouraged that three of the big four banks in the UK have become signatories to the UN principles. Um, and I think what I've engaged with two of them at a senior board level or a senior exec level around the UN principles. And I think uh, the encouraging thing for me is that um, they know they can't have a crisis of, uh, crisis of confidence on this stuff. They can't do something that is seen as superficial. You know, because off the back of all of the other waves of crises, if they do something superficial and aren't taking this seriously or aren't really making progress. So I think they recognise they have to act and they're genuinely struggling and wrestling with how uh, they do it. Um, the extent to which um, we get greenwash uh, versus real um, uh, systemic um, change in those institutions, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, two of the big four banks in the UK have issued green bonds, which in my view would be pure greenwash. 
um, because, and not what we should be classifying in the taxonomy because what they did was they took their renewable energy uh, sort of portfolios and said, well, that's 25% and that, uh, of a bond. Um, we look at the most deprived um, areas of the UK and we lend to small businesses there and any economic activity in those areas is good and they kind of lump it all together and say that's a green bond. But, and then they raise the money against that green bond, but with no clarity as to what they'll do that additional money, use that additional money for. And that, that's what we've really got to sort of uh, scrutinise in, in how they change. Hi, <clears throat> Hi there. Um, my name's Tim James from the Environment Agency. I lead on public health and wellbeing and also air quality strategy nationally. Um, it's good to hear, Bevis, your, your values, your personal ones, and those of, of Triodas Bank, which is great. And I know my colleagues are working with you. What I want to ask is, about the, the banking industry and actually the wider financial industry and its role in data. So you are massive producers, users and recyclers of data. And it's always a surprise to me in this country that we don't ever realise the problem until it's been here a long time. Uh, and one of the big problems growing for us is the impact of data centres and the energy they use and the source of that energy. So we all think come, the energy comes from the grid, but what they've actually got is sorry, banks. Can I, can I just speed you up? I just sorry, ba banks of dirty diesels. No, I just need the question. So the question is, what's the role in, of, of the, the financial sector in improving the performance of those data centres which you rely so much on? Um, <clears throat> I, I, I think my thought on that is that... What we're talking about primarily, or I've talked about primarily tonight, is banks' carbon footprint in their loan books, what they're doing. But it should already be, and it probably isn't at the right level, that through traditional corporate social responsibility, which is, which is a dead concept, it's a sticking plaster on a, a gaping wound to just do a little bit on the side, but your core business doesn't have social environmental alignment. Um, but, but there should be already a focus on exactly that. I mean, we have internal targets to reduce our own sort of footprint and our own sustainability across wide ranges of the business. So I, I think banks have a huge responsibility to do that and to be setting the highest standards because ultimately if you don't do that and you're going into a customer that might be a printing firm or a, uh, you know, all sorts of different types of businesses, how are you able as a relationship manager to then engage with them to talk about their transition and their sustainability? So uh, all I can say is I I think banks should be leaders. So I'm now going quick fire questions. I've got three on this row and we'll see whether we get to you. If we don't, there'll be time when you start mixing in a few minutes. Hello, I'm Hi. Bev Cousins. I run a business called Executive Edge Coaching. Uh, if I can bring it back to Westminster, it seems to me, and we're actually further afield, capitalism trump trumps environmentalism <coughs> every time. If I wrote to my MP, I'd get a stock answer. Lots of my friends and family said, I would have voted green, but it's a wasted vote. How can we change that nationally so that more people's voices are heard? Do you want to take three or am I going to just, it's up to you. Hi, um, my name's Fergus Adam. I work for Lockbox for FinTech who help people build a credit history and get access to the financial system, which you've been talking about. My question is, I love this idea that you need to care about where your money's been, where it's going to go. And do you think do you think you can get people to get out of just caring about money per se and caring about its kind of provenance and where it's going to go in the future? Hello, uh, my name's Joe. I'm an MBA student here at UWE. Um, I wanted to ask what advice you'd give to people who want to work in values-based organisations, but they're faced with needing to more than make ends meet. They want a certain level of salary and comfort in life and are attracted by 
um, larger organisations who have less um, transparent ethics around sustainability. Um, do you think it's possible to have both? Um, what advice would you give to someone in that, people in those situations? So, so do you, you mean the trade-off of working for an organisation that's values-led versus uh, the, the, the career choices you have to make where you might not have the benefits and the rewards uh, on that career journey? Yes. Yeah, yep. okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, the final three questions, I suppose. Um, I think if I take the, the careers one and the choices you make, I mean, we operate in a world where in banking people have been used to um, you know, very significant rewards and um, ultimately we have to be competitive as an employer uh, and our proposition um, to people who join us is that you know, we will be a competitive mid-market payer is where we position to be, but we try and position the non-financial benefits and the sort of well-being aspects and the purpose you have uh, within your careers uh, in a way that is very different from working in a mainstream bank. And we have lots of people who come to us from mainstream banking and uh, would recognise that as the, uh, the experience that they have. Um, and I think that's the, 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 the challenge for um, the sustainability sector more broadly to attract people into it. But ultimately, I think we see a huge generational shift in what people want from work. Uh, and people really do genuinely want that sense of purpose. So uh, I, I think, you know, hopefully in banking, we've seen the sort of level of rewards uh, available and so on um, come down, being capped, etc., uh, etc. Et so hopefully that margin gets um, greater. But uh, certainly we benefit from a huge energy of people who want to be living a purposeful career, etc., uh, etc. Et um, I think on the, the capitalism um, versus environmentalism, the... Uh, uh, the key challenge there um, for me is um, to, to break down that, we have to measure the success of our society on something other than GDP. Uh, and we've tried to sort of sponsor work and thought leadership in that field. So the, the Happy City Index based here in Bristol now produced something called the Thriving Places Index, which is the first attempt to try and measure the sort of holistic well-being, not just economic well-being of particular uh, areas of the UK. But I think that's what we really need uh, in central government at the top to try and connect capitalism, environmentalism, uh, other issues. If we have to have a different measure of measuring the success of our society. So that would just be one thought and something I could probably bang on about all night. Um, and then lastly, really, to try and finish um, with some opti optimism, can people care? Do I really believe that people are going to vote with their money and use money as a form of democracy? If I don't, I really should give up and go back and do something else. Um, yeah, we, we have to believe that and we have to believe in the individual power that we have. Thank you very much. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your questions. Uh, thank you to our speakers, uh, but importantly, thank you to uh, Bevis. I don't think when I walked in the room that I imagined that you would be able to bring banking, ecosystems, wildlife, some fantastic photography, by the way, um, and biodiversity all into one le uh, lecture. A, 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 a tremendous thing for you to do. Um, Clearly, ultimately, this is going to be about behavioural and cultural change. And I'm going to leave you with a couple of questions. Do you want to be, and are you, the octopus during the day? <laughs> or are you at the octopus at night? Because actually some of our actions will determine what happens to the banking sector. Uh, we can change, 
society can change. And the generation that's coming up now behind us, so my kids and their kids, want something different. They look at us and they're basically saying, you've got this very wrong. So we need to create some platforms for them to be able to continue to ensure that we don't behave like the bull seals and go for what we can get whenever we think we can get it, but actually think slightly wider. So Bevis, thank you for taking us on that journey. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. We have a small token uh, to say our appreciation, so please join me again just to thank Bevis. For more information about the Bristol Lectures series, including other podcasts from the series, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow hashtag Bristol Lectures. Thank you.